How is everybody tonight? Good. Let me get set up here. Killing time. Killing time. It is good to be here. Um, and if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you or I don't know you, my name is Mark Catlin. I'm an elder here at Midtown Baptist Church. And my task this evening is to preach from Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. You can go ahead and turn there if you want to. I'll read the text here in a second. Uh, but I must confess to you that if I could choose one commandment not to preach, it would be this one. There are two reasons, at least for that. Uh, one is the Sabbath is a big command, and it runs from creation to new creation, Genesis to Revelation. And if I were to preach it in the way that I would want to, we would be here for a full six days and then need some rest. I'm glad you got that joke. The second reason is that I hate bumping up against my finitude. There's nothing that I dislike more than to realize that I am limited, that I am a creature, that I am dependent on someone or something else. And there is nothing more than the command that you must rest, that you need rest, that shows you that you are finite. I realize that at the end of every day I go to sleep and I need rest. And if I don't get enough, then I'm not a very good creature or child of God. But I'm thankful that this text was handed to me. I I didn't choose it. Uh, They did ask me if I would preach it, and I said yes. I'm thankful that I'm able to preach it this evening because I'm reminded as I meditated on it and prayed over it and listened to the Lord speak through his word that although I do not like my finitude and coming up against it, realizing my finitude and my dependence upon God is good for me. I wonder if you're in a similar situation. You love to go, you love to do, and one of the central aspects of your identity is that you get work done. That's how you earn respect from people. I invite you tonight to lean into your finitude, to realize that you are embodied, that you are dependent, that you are finite. Israel, I think, would have heard this as a good thing. And so as we turn to his word, I want you to hear his command from Exodus 20. You can stand for the reading of God's word. And as we read it, I want you to have this as the big idea in your mind. That the Sabbath invites us to rest in the finished work of our King. The Sabbath invites us to rest in the finished work of our King. Exodus 20, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. As we look at what it means for the Sabbath 
to invite us to rest in the finished work of our king, we need to first hear what this should have sounded like to Israel, how they should have heard it, how they should have obeyed it. Then I want to lean into what should we hear and how should we obey it. So first, how did Israel hear this text? Or should how should they have heard this text? Well, they should have heard it as a people who have just been enslaved for hundreds of years. This command is framed by the fact that God released them from slavery in Egypt. In fact, all the Ten Commandments and all the commands of God are framed by the fact that these commands come from a God who, have, who has released them from slavery. Remember Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Then he goes into commands. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself. Do not misuse the name of the Lord. And remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So they've just been released from slavery. This is the God who released them from slavery. They've been in slavery for a hundred years in Egypt and they have been under cruel taskmasters. They were commanded to do work and they had to do it daily. There was no rest for them. They were beaten, as we understand from the text in Exodus. And as they grew larger, they needed to be kept down. And so there was genocide as their babies were commanded to be killed. When God then demanded to let his people go, they said, you need to do the same amount as labor, but we're not going to give you as much resources. you got to go get the resources yourself and continue to produce as much as you have been. These were cruel taskmasters. Pharaoh was the most powerful ruler at the time. They had all the gods of Egypt, they thought, working against them, but they had one on their side. There was a God who had promised that his people would inherit a land that he was going to give them and that he was going to provide for them, and it was to be a land of rest. So after hundreds of years, God hears the groaning of his people under the weight of slavery, and he responds. He remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as you know, the story of Exodus, whether from reading from the Bible, watching Prince of Egypt, or even if you're old enough to see the old Charlton Heston movie, you know what happens. Let my people go. Moses sticks the staff in the water. It splits in two. Dry ground appears. The people walk across, and the Pharaoh's armies are swallowed up in the sea after God displays his power through ten plagues. At the end of that, now the people come to Sinai, and God is going to give them commands. Now I want you to think about the mindset of Israel at this point. Here they are. They've just been released from slavery, but part of the question that they need to ask is, who is our new king? Who is this God? We were just working for Pharaoh for hundreds of years. He was a cruel taskmaster. But he's shown that he is more powerful than Pharaoh. He's more powerful than all the gods of Egypt. And so as we gather around this mountain to hear from our leader what this God will tell us to do, who is one with all this power going to tell us to do? If the one with the might of Pharaoh caused that sort of suffering and slavery, what is the one with this sort of power going to command us to do? And they've already heard commands. He seems like a strict king. Do not have other gods besides me. Man, even the Egyptian gods allowed us to worship other ones. Only you? And you cannot make any idols for yourself. I can't make my own, not even my little pet idol over here. I mean, where are you at? I can't see you. 
I can't even have my own idol. And I got to respect his name. And if I don't, and I misuse the name of the Lord, I'm not going to go unpunished. So what is he about to tell us our work is like if that's who he is? And what this commandment reveals is that the one who demands this sort of worship, he demands it because he is the only good king and God these people will ever have. And so when he stands with all that sovereign power that he's displayed and he gets to their work, he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and rest. Can you imagine having been at work for 400 years with no rest being beaten and genocide? You face a more powerful king, and with all his sovereign power, he gives you the command, I need you at least once a week to rest from your work. And in this, they find a good and kind and gracious king. Why would one with all the sovereign power in the world, why would he command them to rest from their work? Because this is who he is. The one with all this power, he uses his power not to put more burden on you, but to relieve you from it. This is what they find. That's why the Sabbath invites us to rest in the finished work of our king. They didn't do anything to redeem themselves from slavery. He did everything, and he invites them not to work for him, but to rest in him. But notice, this is not just for the privileged few who can find rest. Look at the text in verse 9. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but then verse 10, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. That's good. I can rest, and then other people can do the work because there's a lot to be done out there, God. Right? No, no, no. Not for the privileged few. You don't do any work. Your son, your daughter, that's cool. We got some servants, right? Nah, not your male or your female servant. What about my animals? Can't they do some work for me? No, not your livestock. What about the people who aren't ethnically Israel? What about the people who, the land that you're giving us, it wasn't promised to them. Can't we make them work the ground because it's ours? No. Or not your resident alien who is within your city gates. Everyone gets rest because God's work that he does is for all. So this not only this is the way in which we honor our God and rest in his work, but it's also the way in which we turn to our neighbor and serve them. The invitation is not just an invitation from God to me, but as I live in his rest, it is an invitation from me to everyone else to say, I want you enjoy, to enjoy the same rest that I do in him. You can rest in him. It is an invitation to rest in the finished work of your king. Enter into his rest. So how do we know that this is who our God is? The text tells us in verse 11 that it's because this is who God revealed himself to be in creation. Why would I do this? Why would we not work? How do we know this is who God is? Verse 11, for the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. 
Now, we are an imitation of God when we rest, but we don't rest for the same reasons. It doesn't mean exactly the same thing. This is important to note. He's, he's going back to the creation story. And so he creates the world, and then in six days, and on the seventh day, he finishes his work, he brings it to completion, and then he rests. I want to be clear here. God didn't work for six days and be like, Woo! I need a nap. I work for a few hours and I say that, but God doesn't work for six days. He doesn't slumber or sleep. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't grow tired. So what is this idea that God needed to rest? Well, he didn't need to rest. So why did he? What does it mean? In the ancient Near Eastern context, a king would set up his kingdom. He would arrange it. He would either conquer a land or where he was. He would organize it in the way that he wanted to. This is what God does in the creation narrative. He organizes creation according to his good order, and he calls it very good once he puts humanity in it. And once a king had established the order that he wanted in his kingdom, he would rest. But in the text that we have, it doesn't mean that he would rest from his work because he was tired. He would rest because he would sit on his throne now to rule his rightly ordered kingdom. Gods would do the same thing when the temple was built. They would then rest on their throne in the temple. Here, the king of Israel, the God who has delivered them from slavery, he is now inviting them into the rest that he established in creation. He ordered creation and then he rested on his throne to rule over his rightly ordered kingdom. And so he invites us into his rest. Do you see that he invites us into, into the finished work of our king? He did the creating. Adam and Eve were not created on day negative one. They weren't created on day one. Day two, day three, day four, day five. They were created on day six. And then in day seven, what did God create? Nothing. His work was completed and then he rested. In other words, he didn't call Adam and Eve to help complete his work because he needed help. He created them on day six and then rested on the seventh so that he could invite them to enjoy his finished work. From the very beginning of creation, what God has been doing is calling humanity, inviting them to rest in the finished work of their king. Now what happens is, you know the story, Adam and Eve sin, right? Instead of resting in his finished work, instead of living under his sovereign rule, his sovereign care, believing that all of creation had been prepared for them to enjoy under his sovereign rule. That what he declared good is good, what he declared evil is evil, they decided that they could decide that. So the one thing that he said they couldn't have, they chose to eat. Not trusting in his provision, not resting in his finished work. So they're kicked out of the garden, and now the work that was so good for them in the garden becomes toilsome. By the sweat of their brow, now will they earn their labor. And the people of God will feel this throughout Genesis, and especially in slavery in Egypt. Against that backdrop, can you hear what this command is saying? The God who created the world, who made promises to Abraham, J Isaac, and Jacob, the one who has freed you from slavery, he is bringing creation back into right order and begins with you worshiping him rightly and then resting in him. He's reestablishing his created order with his people, Israel, and he's going to put them in a garden-like place in the land of Israel. The God who created all things has chosen Israel as the means by which he will now make all things new. He invites them into that creation rest of the Sabbath day. 
his finished work, not only in creation, but in redemption in the Exodus narrative. Israel's story, as you likely know, plays out a lot like Adam and Eve. They are planted in a garden-like place. And if you read the prophets, which I wish we could just read them right now, all of them, one of the most common refrains throughout the prophets for the reason that they will go into exile is that they profaned the Sabbath day. They did not rest in his finished work. They did not trust in his provision and care. And just like Adam and Eve, they decided that they could decide what is good and what is evil. And just like Adam and Eve, they are kicked out of the garden-like place. And the Old Testament ends, who is going to establish creation order again? Who, when is the king going to return? When is God going to fulfill his promises? Because this Sabbath day was a breaking in of the creation order and always headed toward rest at the end. Who is going to give us rest from our enemies? As we go into exile and we are under the rule of Assyria and then Babylon and then Persia and then Greece and then Rome, who is it that will free us from slavery from our oppressors? So they call back to the God of Exodus and they invite him to come. And God promised that he would return. With one unified voice, the New Testament says that the king has returned in the person of Jesus. What is it then that we are to do in Jesus and why? Are we supposed to legalistically obey the Sabbath? Is it a rule for us that we can do no work at all? This is an easy question for me to answer because we have a statement of faith at this church. And so I shall read you the statement of faith concerning the Lord's Day. We believe that the first day of the week is the Lord's Day, that it is a Christian institution for regular observance, that it commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead and is a preparation for and foretaste of the rest that awaits the people of God that is to be kept sacred to religious purposes by the devout observance of all the means of grace, both public and private. And therefore, in our church covenant, we say this, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together for the mutual building up of one another in Christ. Why do we do this? It's not the same day. Why is it the Lord's day on Sunday rather than the Sabbath day in the Old Testament? Again, I wish I had a few days to unpack this, but I don't. So I'll simply say this, I'll go back to my big idea, because it's how we respond to the invitation to rest in the finished work of our King Jesus. The one who said that he would return to his people and bring them rest, he has come in the work, person and work of Jesus. So on Good Friday that we just celebrated this past weekend and on through Easter, he carried the burden of our sin and he echoed the words of his father back in Genesis. He echoed them on the cross and he says, it is finished. On the seventh day, that is the Sabbath, he rested in the grave. But on the first day of the next week, he rose in power. This one who died on the cross and accomplished our finished work, rested on the Sabbath day and then rose from the grave on Sunday, he now sits on the throne and invites any and all to find their rest in his finished work. He establishes a new day in which we worship him 
If you notice, essentially the first few commands of the Ten Commandments we now fulfill on Sunday morning when we gather and, in, and rest in the finished work of our King. We worship Him alone. We cast aside and forsake all of our idols, and we honor the name of Jesus, the only name under which we can be saved, and we rest in His finished work on the cross on the Lord's day. We do this by sitting under the preaching of his word. We do this by offering ourselves in prayer and saying we depend upon you and confessing our sins. We do this by feasting on Christ himself spiritually in the bread and the cup, the new covenant, because he gives us rest in his finished work. And then we fellowship with one another we call one another to enter the same rest that we have entered so that we can experience the rest and the finished work of Christ. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 11. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Christian, I wonder how you structure your time. What do you see as the organizing principle of your weeks? I have about 16 calendars that all overlap with themselves in Outlook. And I don't look at it. Because if I looked at it, I would realize my finitude and my inability to get all the work done. And if I allow those calendars to be the organizing principle of my life, that that is what defines my time and my life, here's what would rule my life. Fear. Anxiety. Self-centeredness. And I would crumble under the weight of the tasks that I am called to do because I simply can't do them because I'm embodied I'm dependent, and I'm finite. When I'm at my best, the Sabbath day is the organizing principle of my time. What do I mean by that? Well, I wonder if you see your weeks in this Lord's day that we're invited to rest in the finished work of Christ. I wonder if you see your weeks as beginning with rest in the finished work of your king. A rest which then your king then sends you out from that on mission to work six days for him, and yet not alone. Why? Because every day he has promised that he walks with you, that he is working in and through you, and that he goes before you and behind you to work his good purpose and his will in and through you. And do you see those six days as not only something to be sent out in two, but a pilgrimage back to the holy day? just as Israel would wander through the wilderness and eventually land in the holy land. So we too, every week, get to come back to that that place which is sanctified. It is a day for us. I wonder if you saw that as the organizing principle of your time, that stress and anxiety would be relieved. That if you saw as the organizing principle of your time, a king who doesn't burden you with commands, but rather invites you to rest with him. And then says, cast your burdens on me and I will carry them with you. So I wonder what calendar dominates your mind and heart. 
the calendars that I have in mind for myself as I'm a professor, I'm a parent, I'm a spouse, I'm a coach, I'm an elder. Take all those things and you overlap them. All of those things are good things. But if any of them become the organizing principle of my time, it all falls apart. I'm crushed under the weight of it. If you understand yourself not to be a Christian tonight, I want you to hear clearly that this invitation to find rest in the finished work of the King extends to you. You may think yourself a free person because you do what you want. I have a hard word for you tonight. You are suffering under a cruel taskmaster who the Bible says is your enemy. He has promised you joy that you will never find in life outside of Christ. He has promised you peace that you will never find in life outside of Christ. He has promised you comfort and fulfillment that you will never find in life outside of Christ. But there is a king that through his death and resurrection has conquered that enemy and can free you from your slavery to sin and bring you into a life of righteousness. I invite you tonight to answer that invitation and give yourself to this king who invites you to rest in him. So as we think about the Sabbath this week, even leading into this Sunday, I want you to think about a pilgrimage to this Sunday, reading John 10, singing our songs, praying prayers of praise and confession, and in this way, allowing the Sabbath on Sunday to invite you now to rest in the finished work of our King. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have accomplished the finished work for our salvation in Christ. We thank you that we can rest in that. We thank you that we can be relieved of fear and anxiety and stress because you have accomplished your salvation for us in Christ. And we thank you that though you are the sovereign one of the universe, that you use your power not to burden us, but rather to relieve our burdens. We ask that you would empower us to lean into our finitude, that we might rest in you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.